This morning, we are completing our brief study through a number of the Psalms. Um, next week, we're going to begin a four-week series called Advent Songs of the Servant. There's an insert in your bulletin about that, hoping to give out a number of those and, uh, and uh, to uh, neighbors and so forth to let people know about that. What we'll be doing is we'll be looking at the servant songs that are in Isaiah and the book of Isaiah. All, each of those servant songs prophesies in a different way of the coming of Christ into the world. So that's what we'll be focusing on. And just to let you know, after that, uh, my plan is for us to do a study through, the book, through, the, through Psalm 119. That'll be our next thing that we'll go to after we finish the songs of the Advent. Psalm 24 is identified simply as a psalm of David. The phrase king of glory shows up five times in verses 7 through 10. So that's especially a theme there, especially at the end. The king of glory is focused on Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, it's interesting to see how Psalm 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24 relate to each other. It's obvious that these were placed in order that the place, the way that they were for a reason, because there's, there's interrelatedness between them. And Psalm 20, and we've looked at all but 22, uh, but we, we've looked at these in the recent weeks. In Psalm 20, David is asking for prayers from the people of God for help in his day of trouble. And he gives a lot of really practical help there in Psalm 20 to help us pray for one another. But also speaks in a prophetic way of God coming to the help of David's son, the anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his day of trouble. It seems to have special application to when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. He too asked for prayer. But his disciples could not stay awake for that. Over in Psalm 21, the emphasis is on how the Lord answered the prayers that were prayed in Psalm 20. The Lord did, in fact, deliver David in his day of trouble. He trusted in the Lord for strength, and the Lord brought him victory. Once again, in a prophetic way, this speaks of how God the Father was strong for Christ when so many enemies were against him. They were able to put him to death on the cross, obviously, but they were not ultimately able to succeed. The Lord placed splendor and majesty on Christ as the God of our salvation. In Psalm 22, the emphasis is on the suffering that Christ endured while he was on the cross. It begins by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It then speaks more of the suffering he endured. It speaks of how he was mocked by people of all sorts. It speaks of how he was deserted by his friends. It speaks of how his hands and feet were pierced. It speaks of how the soldiers gambled for his garment at the foot of the cross while he was dying. The psalm also gives some very encouraging words about the exaltation of Christ as king. Last week, we saw in Psalm 23 that the Savior King is also our good shepherd. He carefully and personally watches over each of his sheep, even in the most difficult challenges of our lives, and doing that all the way through eternity. Every sheep of the good shepherd will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, now in Psalm 24... 
we will look again at what Christ has accomplished for us in salvation. And then we look at his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and there even seems to be an allusion to his second coming in this, in this uh, psalm. So the connection is really with the promised Messiah in Psalms 20 through 24, are really quite, quite amazing. Okay, let's read Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. There's three things that we're going to look at in this psalm. First, there's an emphasis on the Lord as the creator and sustainer of the world and all things in it. Second, we're presented with a question of how anyone can be in a right relationship with the Lord such that they actually receive a blessing from him. Then third, we look at the Lord as the exalted king of glory. So first, David makes it very clear that the sovereign Lord is the creator and sustainer of the world and all that is within it. All that is within it. He says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So every aspect of the earth belongs to the sovereign Lord. Land, trees, mountains, valleys, plants, bodies of water of all sorts, fish, all the beasts of the field, every blade of grass, including what's in your yard, every handful of dirt, every vegetable, and every weed, including those in your yard. It all belongs to the Lord. We have things we own, but we are actually only using the property and living on it as tenants in in, in the ultimate scheme of things because it all belongs to the Lord. God also owns those who dwell in the world. Every person who has ever been born in the history of the world and every person who will be born in the future belongs to God. Every person in every part of the world and every nation and every people group belong to God. And it's not just our bodies. It's our souls. It's our inner man that belongs to God as well. No one in this world is independent of God. They may deny his existence with their whole being, but that doesn't change the fact that every single person who has, does, or or is, or, or, or will dwell in the earth, every single person belongs to God. In fact, the the unbeliever who is denying his existence, they are doing that while standing on the earth that he created, using the mind that he gave them, using the mouth that he gave them, using being absolutely dependent on the air that he provides every day to sustain their life. And as they do that, 
They deny his existence. To the Christian, the idea that he is that our God is creator of all things, that should be encouraging. Matthew Henry says this. He says, All parts and regions of the earth are the Lord's, all under his eye, all in his hand, so that wherever a child of God goes, he may comfort himself with this, that he does not go off his father's ground. That's good news for us. We are always on our father's ground. And the body he's given us, no matter where we are, we are always in our father's ground. To the non-believer, it's something they must deny. But one day, they will have to admit that it's true. Well, verse 2 reinforces this truth. It says, he founded it upon the seas, established it, that is the earth, on the rivers. This seems to be a reference to God's creation of the world in Genesis chapter 1. Let me read how that's, uh, just to remind you of what that says. It's just Genesis 1, 9, and 10. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. In Job 38, the Lord said that he put boundaries on the sea and said, Thus far you may come, but no farther. So the fact that the Lord founded the earth upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, as David says here, is really further proof that the sovereign Lord is the creator and the sustainer of the world and all that is within it, which includes us. Well, in verses 3 to 6, we see our second main point, which is the sovereign Lord makes it clear how one can receive blessing from him, how one can receive blessing from him. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, even those who seek your face, even Jacob. So after establishing the earth and all that dwell in it as belonging to the Lord, David now speaks of the relationship the people of the world have with their creator. He begins this discussion with questions, uh, two questions specifically in verse 3. Who may ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The hill of the Lord is probably a reference to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Uh, It was on this mountain that the temple was built by David's son Solomon. But these Really, geographical references are meant really to symbolize what it takes for one of God's creations to have a right relationship with their creator and be able to stand accepted in his presence. So it's not just geographical, but actually has more to do with what is spiritual, with with what is true. Another way to say this is what does it take to be one of the people of God? What does it take to be a true member of his church? Well, the first thing David makes clear with these questions is this. He says that the creator is perfectly holy. Therefore, to stand in his glorious presence requires perfect holiness. First, David gives the image of ascending up the hill of the Lord. The image here is of a climb that's difficult to make, challenging for the person who's doing the climb. To make it safely through this climb is what the person must do to ascend to the Lord. 
And then David speaks not only of making the climb, but what it would take to actually permanently stand in his presence. This standing is described as standing in his holy place. So our God is not only the Lord and creator of the earth and all things, he is also perfectly holy. David then gives four things that are necessary if one is going to stand in the glorious, holy presence of God. The first one is this. One must refrain from all evil actions. Refrain from all evil actions. David says in verse 4, the person must have clean hands. The hands are just a reference to our actions, the things that we do, the places that we go, the activities that we engage in, the words that we speak with our mouth. All these things should be clean in the eyes of God. They should be righteous. They should be God-honoring. It is only people with clean hands who can stand accepted in the glorious and holy presence of God. Second, one must refrain from every evil thought and desire. Every evil thought and desire. David actually describes it as having a pure heart. It is actually the condition of our heart that ends up determining the outward things that we do with our hands. Evil, sinful actions point to a heart that is not pure. You remember how Jesus described the Pharisees. He said they were whitewashed tombs. So they looked clean, white, everything on the outside, but inside they were just full of death. The heart is the inner man. It is who we are on the inside. So that includes the thoughts that go through our minds. It includes the things that we dwell on with our minds. It includes the inward desires that we have. It includes the purposes and goals. In other words, the why, what motivates us to do what we do. That's our heart. And it's only people with pure hearts who can stand accepted in the presence of God. Third, one must not give their soul over to vain things, vain things of the world. And verse 4, David says, they have not lifted up their soul to falsehood. Uh, The word for falsehood, and you may see this in the margin of your Bible possibly, the word falsehood can also be defined as vanity. One of the most valuable things that our creator has given us is our soul. Genesis 2-7 says, The Lord formed man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Just a glorious image of the value of each individual person's soul. Every soul, every person will live for eternity. Everyone. Since our soul is God-given, it's imperative that we give our soul to what is good and right and holy and pleasing to God. We must not give our soul to what is vain and sinful The scriptures tell us that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is what our heart, our soul, that's what our inner man was made for. That's how it works best. That's the best possible use of our soul. The opposite is to give your soul to loving what is sinful, loving what is worldly, loving what is impure and ungodly. If we're to stand accepted in the glorious presence of our God, we must not give our soul to the vain things of the world. Finally, David says, 
one must always deal honestly. Deal honestly with both God and man. In verse 4, he says that he must not swear deceitfully. The ninth commandment tells us that we must not bear false witness against our neighbor. This, of course, would include uh, giving truth in a court proceeding or some sort of legal uh, situation. But, of course, it includes really anything we say about or to another person. <clears throat> We're not to be deceptive in the things that we say. We're not to be deceptive in the, way of the ways that we act toward other people. <clears throat> Our words are to be truthful, and they're supposed to be considerate. In Colossians 3, <clears throat> Paul gives a summary of the sins of the tongue when he says we are to put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from our mouth. And then he follows it up immediately saying, do not lie to one another. People need to be able to trust what we say to them as being honest and accurate. That's a high and godly standard. But not swearing deceitfully also has to do with our relationship with God. God despises hypocrisy. When we say one thing and then act in a different way, that's not, that's not, that's swearing deceitfully. There are a couple of oaths that uh, people will oftentimes take uh, before God. Those who are married take an oath to be faithful to their spouse. But that's not only an oath to the spouse, it is an oath to the spouse. It's also an oath to God. Christians also make an oath when they commit to membership in a particular local church. That's an oath to the other members in the church, but it's also ultimately an oath to God. These are things that are, are, are necessary if we are going to things, all these things that he's listed here are things that are necessary if we're going to stand in the holy presence of God and be accepted. The reality is, as probably every one of you have probably already figured out, is that we all fall short. Nobody is perfect like this. And it's a reminder to us of the absolute righteousness that is required of every one of us. And it's and even though, but what I don't want you to do is say, oh, well, I don't measure up. You need to ponder and think about why you don't measure up. This Psalm and another, Psalm 15, Psalm 15 is similar. I'm not going to look at that right now, but it's the same idea. I mean, there are, there are the same kind of words here that just make you, when you read these psalms, when it comes time in my plan to kind of get to one of these psalms, I'm always very uncomfortable. Because there are always things that come to my mind when I think, have I always done, are my, are my hands always clean? Is my mind always pure? Have I ever given my soul to something that's vain? Have I kept all my vows the way that I should... I mean, there's always things that come to mind. So what do you do when that happens? Well, you confess it as sin. Lord, this is sin. These things are wrong. Lord, help me to repent, to turn. And what it'll ultimately have to make you do is to lean on Jesus Christ. That's what this whole psalm ends up leading to, is focusing and leaning on Christ, because none of us are good enough to ascend to the hill of the Lord and stand 
in his holy presence. Christ has to come in the picture, and he does. Well, verse 5 reminds us of the next thing. That it's only by the righteousness that is earned by Christ that one receives the blessing of salvation from God by faith. Verse 5 says this. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, let me tell tell you what this does not mean. This does not mean that that if you are one who is good enough and you have attained the standard that was just listed, then that's how you get the blessing. Instead, what it's reminding us is that if there's any good fruit in our life at all, it's because God has brought it about. The person can only ascend to the hill of the Lord because of what they receive from the Lord, not what they give him. We can only ascend because of what we receive from the Lord. And it's only from the Lord that one can receive true righteousness. And no one can receive that righteousness uh, apart from God himself because it says there in that verse, he is the God of this person's salvation. He said he's the God of his salvation. Salvation is not something you attain to. God is the God of our salvation. So it comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord, not from anything we can muster up on our own. The blessings of righteousness are received from the God of salvation. Righteousness and salvation go together. And this righteousness can only be received by faith because salvation is only received by faith. Not something we can earn, not something we can attain to. Like I said, this, of course, is pointing us. He's giving us all these hints and pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. David's going to speak of that in much more clarity in the final four verses. But there's one more thing that David says about receiving this blessing of salvation from the God of salvation. In verse 6, he says, This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob, Selah. So in this verse, we see that those who seek the Lord in faith will find him. Those who seek the Lord in faith will find him. The generation of those who seek the Lord are those who seek him by his grace. They have realized that they are not at all righteous enough to to be received by God. We must receive that righteousness from him. We must seek the Lord to know him, to be accepted by him. And it's interesting that he uses the phrase here, It's not just seek the Lord, seek him. Those who seek your face. He elaborates. He's making something of a distinction there. It's not just what you can get from God. I'm seeking God to give give me this. For example, I need God to make sure I don't go to hell when I die. I need God to make sure I go to heaven instead of going to hell. When you seek his face... It puts it in a different light. That's seeking intimacy with him. That's seeking to love him, to delight in him. You're seeking his face. The best thing about heaven is not going to be that your friends and family members are there. Praise God that hopefully many of them will be, but that's not the best thing. The best thing about heaven is that God is there. And as we seek his face, that helps us to recognize and make the distinction that he is our first love. 
and our first joy, our first delight. That's part of what's going on here about seeking his face. Now, why is Jacob mentioned? We've probably got different translations here. If we compared them, you'd find kind of a, a variety of how, how Jacob is talked about there. Well, on, well, it's not crystal clear why Jacob is mentioned. Here's my opinion. To me, Jacob is an example of one who recognized the sinful state of his heart and his life and sought the Lord for the blessing of salvation. Jacob, if you remember any of the story, and I'm not going to go into the details, I'm just going to give you a few things here. Jacob was known as a deceiver from the day of his birth. Lying and deception were regular, regular parts of his life. It seemed that his deception was finally going to catch up with him when he was about to come face to face with his brother Esau, who he cheated out of his birthright as the firstborn. But the Lord met Jacob the night before. He wrestled with the angel of the Lord, and before it was over, God blessed him. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means the face of God. Jacob met the Lord. He sought the face of God, and his life was changed. He apparently walked with a limp the rest of his life as a memorial of that wrestling match because his hip was put out of, put out of joint. He apparently limped the rest of his life, but it was a mark of ownership. He had delighted in the Lord. David writes Selah after verses 1 to 6 to emphasize the fact that everyone needs to come face to face with God. We all need to see him as our creator. We all need to see what it is that he requires of us. We all need to see that we have failed miserably. And we all need to see that our only hope of salvation is in God himself. And in desperation, we seek him. We seek his face for that blessing of salvation that we need. I think Selah means for us to stop and think about that. That leads us to the third part of Psalm 24, which is verses 7 through 10. So in those verses, David leads us to see this third truth. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the exalted king of glory. Verses 7 through 10 actually, actually are, are the answer to the questions that are raised in verse 3. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Well, as we've said, there's not a single one of us who is clean enough or pure enough, not a single one of us who values the truth enough, not a single one of us who is perfectly faithful to keep every vow we've made before God. None of us measure up. Who can do that? It's something that must be done, but who can do it? David tells us it's the king of glory. That's who does it. This is a reference to this son of God, the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the eternal king in the line of David. As God, he is all glorious. 1 Corinthians 2.8, Christ is referred to as the Lord of glory. And James 2.1 he is referred to as the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He is perfectly glorious in himself, which speaks of the perfections of his divine nature as the eternal Son of God. Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ is the radiance of his Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature, because he's fully God. So he is the King of glory that is referred to here in Psalm 24. 
First thing we need to see in these verses is this. Lord Jesus Christ is honored as the only one, the only one who could ascend into the hill of the Lord. What is David speaking of when he speaks of lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors? Well, some have said that this psalm may have been written by David whenever the Ark of the Covenant was being carried to Jerusalem after being in the home of Obed-Edom. And then it was placed there in a tent that David had prepared for it. Another possibility is that it may have been written in a prophetic way for the time when the temple would be built, which would be after David's life by his son Solomon, to be used at the dedication of that temple and um, the Ark of the Covenant being placed there. So the gates and the doors really would be a reference to the gates of Jerusalem and even taking us into the, maybe the outer gate of the temple. With that in mind, this is very intriguing to me. Some have said that this psalm was sang with responsive parts, having a chief musician, singers, maybe a couple different choruses and the, uh, uh, singing, and then King himself being involved in a procession that started from the outside of Jerusalem, came into the gates of Jerusalem, and went in, went up to the Temple Mount. Here's how it would be. The chief musician would begin with the first two verses that praise the Lord as the great creator. As they came to the foot of Mount Zion, the questions from verse 3 about who could ascend to the hill of the Lord, those would be sung. A chorus would then respond with the requirements and the promises recorded in verses 5 to 6. Then when the procession reached the gates of Jerusalem, the king would respond with verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The chorus would then respond with this question, Who is the king of glory? A second chorus would respond with the answer given in verse 8, The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Then the procession would go up to the entrance of the tabernacle, the king would speak in verse 9, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then they would close with the final question, Who is this king of glory? And the people would respond then with a final shout, The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Just really easy to see how this psalm could be used like that. I mean, you can also see what a moving and worshipful experience that would be to see it used in that way. They would be singing of the king of glory who was to come, the only one who could ascend to the hill of the Lord. We would sing and read it as prophetic of the coming Messiah who has already come. He is the perfect unblemished lamb who was given as a sacrifice for our sin, and it was his blood that paid the price for our sin. All that, of course, is pictured in all the sacrifices there in, the, in the, uh, uh, the temple area. And it's through faith in him that we're able to ascend to the hill of the Lord. Well, next, we need to note this. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord mighty in battle, fully accomplished salvation for sinners and then ascended in victory to the right hand of the Father. Notice in verse 8 that the first reference to the king of glory is as the Lord strong and mighty the Lord mighty in battle. Think about this. Let's just think about that. The Son of God came into the world, took on human flesh. 
the eternal God humbled himself to deal with the miseries associated with this life. He dealt with temptations from Satan that were stronger than anyone else in the world has ever endured. He continued firmly in love and and holy living in the midst of people who did not understand what he was saying. He battled the hostile unbelief of fellow Jews. He battled against the lies and deception of the Jewish leaders. He endured the wrath of God and the cursed death on the cross, publicly shamed and mocked by religious leaders as he died that painful death. Then he was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead. The salvation of those who would believe in him was complete. But it was a battle. And our Lord is mighty in battle. There is no greater battle than the battle for salvation of sinners. And Jesus Christ accomplished that. He won that victory in his work for our salvation. Now here we need to keep in mind, the earthly temple of the Lord that was in Jerusalem was a type of the heavenly temple. After Jesus was resurrected, he then ascended in the heavenly realm to the right hand of the Father. The King of glory, the Lord mighty in battle, entered the heavenly gates, the ancient gates, or more literally, the everlasting doors. He is at the right hand of the Father as the only mediator between God and man. He is our great high priest. He reigns at the right hand of the Father as the messianic king. He is Lord. He is the king to which every knee will bow. And because of him, because of his ascension, we are able to ascend to the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place in Christ. Finally, we need to see this. As the exalted king of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ will return, putting all his enemies under his feet and judging the world as the Lord of hosts. Verses 9 and 10 are virtually a repetition of verses 7 and 8. In one sense, this repetition, I think, is done to emphasize the importance of the one who is the king of glory and all that he's accomplished. One of the most important battle that exists, the battle for salvation of sinners. But there may be another reason for the repetition. Christ ascended first time to intercede for us as the prophet, priest, and king, the Lord mighty in battle. In fact, he continues to be the Lord mighty in battle on some level because Psalm 110 tells us he sits at the Father's right hand until his, all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And there he's speaking of the Lord using the power of the gospel to overcome the sinful resistance of sinners to himself, bringing them to salvation. And as a result of that work, it says later in Psalm 110 that his people will volunteer freely in the day of his power. Many of us have experienced that actual work of salvation in our life when the Lord has overcome our resistance to him and brought us into his kingdom. Well, in that sense, he continues to reign as the Lord mighty in battle. But there's more to come. Christ will come the second time as the Lord of hosts. When he returns, all the heavenly host will be with him in glory. 
He will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him for judgment. Those who have believed in him for salvation will be glorified with him for all eternity. Those who have refused to put their faith in Christ, they will still kneel before him, but not as their Savior King, as their judge who condemns them. He's the King of glory. Once again, David writes Selah here to emphasize the need to think carefully about what these words mean. They mean that because Jesus Christ is the King of glory, all sinners can, can ascend to the hill of the Lord by faith in him as his children. We can see why this psalm was used in really such a moving way for the people to sing praise to the King of glory. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that you used David to write in such prophetic ways and such really very clear and pointed ways because there's not a person who can read those questions and look and read those answers on what is required to, to, to be in your presence. None of us can read that if we're honest and say, oh, that's me. Everything I've done has been clean. Everything I've done has been pure. I've never done anything that was deceitful, lying. I've never given my soul to anything vain. None of us can say that. We know those things just are not true. But we are given such hope here because the point isn't, ultimately isn't that we can ascend. It is that, but it's that someone else has ascended for us. And so we thank you so much for the salvation that has been accomplished for us. We thank you for the King of glory, who is our Savior, who is our King. Lord, help us to continue to grow in our understanding and our appreciation of what you have done in our life and continue to do in us. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, then you're trying to ascend on your own works, and it just can't happen. I don't care who you are, how good you are. You simply are not holy enough. But Jesus Christ is. And I would invite you to receive Christ as your Savior and as the, as, as the Lord of your life. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. And I realize that I need Jesus Christ as my Savior, as my King, my King of glory. And I want to receive him as my Savior and King. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off or those on the website.